and that is totally not what this thing is about. So they may think, you know, to be a follower of Jesus uh, is to act in a certain way or avoid other actions. Does that make sense? Right, like, I'm a Christian because I, I perform these actions or I avoid those things. You know, like, I don't drink alcohol. That's liquid sin, you know. And, and uh, I, don't, I don't vape or smoke cigarettes. That's vaporized sin. You know, we still recognize that. So, therefore, I'm Christian, right? And we may think of ourselves in those terms. But as one reads through uh, the Sermon on the Mount, which is, we're going to drop into the tail end of this um, as you're reading through the Sermon on the Mount, you see Jesus describing ways of acting and living. And you can very easily come to a performative conclusion there as well. If not, for the verse that we're going to look at tonight. Right? You could read Jesus' stuff where he's saying, forgive people and give and, and uh, you know, don't be mean and, like, you know, recycle and give hugs like, you know, all that stuff that he says in the Sermon on the Mount. And you can easily conclude that Christianity was about performing. was about doing the right things. But this verse kind of blows that out of the water. In this one terrifying statement, Jesus destroys all thought of Christianity being a simple list of morals and principles. He destroys completely the idea that it's about conformity in order to get into heaven. Right? There's like, like there's a... The pearly gates in heaven are like in the shape of a holy person, and you have to fit into that mold to make it through. Right here, in Matthew 7, Jesus says this. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons. And in your name perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Let's pray on that note. Heavenly Father, Lord, we speak to us tonight. Lord, we, we desperately need to hear from you tonight. Some of us are tired and from all the activity we, we had in the past you know, week or weekend, Lord. But also some of us have come to know you in a new way, Lord. Some of us have come to know you in, like for the first time. So God, I pray that you would speak to all of us today. Meet us all where we are. God, because the whole point of doing all of this is to meet with you. Holy Spirit, we love you. Jesus, thank you. Thank you, thank you for being our King and our Savior. Jesus and pray. Amen. So Jesus is, you know, interacting with this other person, right? Who we will call the conformist. Because he did the right things. Right? He performed the right actions. He conformed to the standard. And boy, what a standard. Right? Uh, like he prophesied. I don't know how many of y'all have prophesied. I have not. You know, I've seen people do it on the internet, though. Um, they were wrong about some elections sometimes. Um, not only that, but he, he also drove out demons. I don't know if y'all do that often. Uh, it's not on my weekly to-do list. Um, and, and then also perform miracles. Just throw that in at the end. You know, just, I don't know, like, hey, jump in the pool. I can't. I'm performing a miracle. It's a slow burn. You'll get it. Just think about that one for a minute, right? So... 
I don't know about y'all, but I don't even meet the standards of action that this guy does. I don't regularly prophesy or draw, drive out demons or perform miracles. And in order to do those things, this person must have been super holy. I mean, way more holy than I am. And yet Jesus says this is not enough. This person was still cast away and called an evildoer. In fact, Jesus says the only ones that get into heaven are ones that do the will of his father. But didn't this guy do the will of his father? Prophesied, drove out demons, performed miracles? That sounds like the will of God, doesn't it? Hmm. But apparently we're wrong about what the will of God is. Apparently the will of God is not performative. So I don't know how many of you have gone around and performed miracles like this, but if this guy, if the conformist doesn't make the cut, then what hope is there for us? If this is not doing the will of the Father, then I don't know what is. So we must look at the reason for the conformist rejection. Jesus looks at him, even though he throws out his spiritual resume, and Jesus says, away from me, you evildoer, I never knew you. I never knew you. So the word here in Greek for know is really important. It's the Greek word gnosko. And if I'm pronouncing it wrong, I'm very sorry. Um, But it means literally to know, to perceive, or to understand someone or something. It's not a cursory knowledge, it's a depth of knowledge. Right? It was also used idiomatically as like a, a term for sex. So at this period of time, like when you read in, in like Matthew Matthew chapter 1, you know, where if Joseph is talking about Mary, you know, and he's like, I haven't known her. That's what they're talking about, like knocking boots, you know what I mean? That's an idiom for sex too, right? So the implication of using the word gnosko here is that, that Jesus is intending a deep and intimate knowledge of someone. Not just a cursory knowledge of someone. So I want to tell you about one of the highlights of my life, okay? When I was, um, gosh, I was 13 or 14 years old. My parents had just gotten divorced. I was a depressed little angry white kid, right? Which nowadays is like terrifying, right? Yeah, absolutely. But uh, my dad had this sweet job, right? He worked on movies and TV, right? Like, And we lived in the Dallas area, so he worked on this PBS show called Wishbone. I don't know if any of y'all saw that. He also worked on another show called Barney in France. He also worked on this other show that was filmed in the DFW area, Walker, Texas Right? And so I got to go on set and meet that man right there. There were times when it was like visitation with dad, and dad had to work, you know, couldn't afford a babysitter. And so we went to the set of Walker, Texas Ranger, right? Freaking awesome, right? You can imagine 14-year-old me, like getting to meet Chuck Norris, the dude that Bruce Lee was like, that's the most dangerous man I've ever fought. You know what I mean? Like, and the coolest thing was that like me, my little brother, and my older sister, we're hanging in the back because my dad's put the fear of God in our hearts. You know, he's like, if you screw anything up, I get fired. And if I get fired, I have to sell you, right? So we're like hanging out in the back, like trying not to be in the way. And we're just like, 
don't move, don't speak, you know, especially when they say rolling, you know, you don't want to be the idiot kid that screws that up, right? And so we're like hanging out in the back, and in between one of his takes, I remember Chuck with his cowboy hat on, because this is Walker, Texas Ranger, right? <laughs> Looks over and sees us, and kind of makes a funny face, then goes back and does, finishes his scene. When his scene was over, he walked back to where we were and talked with us. Then invited us into his trailer, like gave us food, candy, hung out with us for like the entire time that he wasn't filming. He would come and hang out with me, my sister, and my little brother. How cool is that, right? Then at the end of the day, he gave us like autographs, and he like he gave us like uh, world premiere tickets to his made-for-TV movie that was coming out. Which you know, just think about that for a minute. Thanks. I guess I'll watch it on the USA Network. Anyway, but that's awesome. Right? I met Chuck Norris and I lived to tell about it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The man that doesn't do push-ups, he does earth downs. You know what I mean? The man that on his birthday selects one lucky kid to throw into the sun. You know what I mean? Like, I love that guy. Anyway, Chuck Norris, right? Lived up to everything I thought, he, thought he'd be. He's so cool. He's so awesome, right? But today, if I went up to his house and waltzed into his living room, you know, march into the kitchen, open the fridge, start eating food, how do you think he would react? He would roundhouse kick me into absolute oblivion, right? There'd be no body left, I'd disintegrate into a pile of atoms, right? Why? Because even though I have met Chuck Norris, I don't know him. Does that make sense? And even though Chuck may be vaguely aware of me, probably not anymore, but maybe at one time he was, he doesn't know me either. Yeah. And he would be equally upset seeing me in his living room as I would seeing him in his living room, right? And then remember, in this scenario, I'm terrified of him. So, knowing someone, this is the knowledge we're talking about. This is what Gnosko means. Not just, hey, Chuck Norris, remember that time we hung out for a couple hours? And, and now I want to, like, crash on your couch? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about an intimate knowledge. It's not so much that I know who, he, who Chuck Norris is. It's more important in this scenario that Chuck knows who I am. Does that make sense? And so as terrifying as these verses are, there's some amazing implications there's the contrapositive of this verse. There's the positive and beautiful implications, right? We get stuck on this whole like, well, if the dude that's driving out demons and like performing miracles doesn't make it into heaven, who does, right? But there's some beautiful things about this if we think about it. And the first thing is that God is knowable. God is knowable. God expects to be known. That's pretty incredible. See, our culture is deeply influenced by this philosophy and idea that goes all the way back to ancient Greece. Um, this guy named Epicurus, right? And, and Epicurus was pretty nihilistic, you know? He was just like, you know what? I'm sure there's some gods out there, and if they're out there, they probably don't care about us, and we shouldn't care about them, so we should just eat, drink, and be merry. Hang it all. Who cares? Let's just have a good time because none of this matters. Because ultimately, the gods are way up on Mount Olympus and they don't care about us. And this is how we think. 
This is actually how the majority of Americans think about God, whether they claim to be Christians or not. There's even some schools of Christian thought that teach this idea that God is ultimately unknowable. But it's not true. Why? Because Jesus seems to expect to be known and to know. See, we know exactly what God is like because we know Jesus. Jesus is God in flesh. You ever wonder what God is like? He's like Jesus. That guy up in the sky that you think doesn't care about you, what is he like? Well, he's like the same dude that knelt in the dirt and wrote to distract attention from a woman that had been caught in her shame. He's like the guy that gave honor and dignity to the poor beggar woman. He's like the guy that gave honor and dignity to the centurion. He's like the guy that healed the sick. He's like the guy that went into the houses of prostitution and drinking and loved them and valued them and cared about them like no one else had. What is God like? He's like that person. He's knowable and we can know him. And his name is Jesus. But also, God deems it vitally important to know you. The other implication of this verse is that God deems it vitally important to know you. Not only is it important, but he deeply cares to know you. If you weren't here this weekend, you guys, you missed out. Sarah Malcolm was incredible. Like the Lord spoke, and I have, it's been a long time since I've heard preaching that was that good. And Sarah said, Jesus came down to earth from heaven to gain proximity to you so that you can have real community together. How much does God care about getting to know you enough to leave his throne in heaven and come slum it up with us on this dirt ball, right? See, Epicurus was wrong. Dead wrong. God is knowable. And he wants to know you as well. And it is this knowing that is apparently the way to get into heaven. Not doing the right things or avoiding the bad things. But knowing God. And God knowing you. This is the will of the Father. Because this is how you get into heaven. So then that begs the question. Scroggins, this is all wonderful, but how do we actually get to know God? And how do we let God know us? Simply put, this is what we call prayer. This is what prayer is. Just getting to know one another. Pretty simple. Prayer is the way that we allow God to know us and allow ourselves to know God. Yeah. It is not enough for you to have awareness of God. But you must have a living and active and vital relationship with Him. It's not enough that God knows the number of hairs on your head. But He wants to know. He wants to have a living, active, and vital relationship with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of my favorite preachers, Joy Dawson. Uh, she was a preacher and evangelist. She, in one of her books, is recounting this time that she was spending in prayer. And she said, Lord, I want you to use me. Lord, I'm here for here for you to use me, Lord. Let me serve you. And the, the Lord stopped her in prayer and said, everyone wants to serve me, but no one wants to be my friend. Yeah. See, what Joy was praying is she was saying, 
She was saying, Lord, have I not performed miracles and driven out demons? Have I not done all these amazing things? I prophesied all these things in your name. And God says, I don't care. I just want to know you. All the performative actions piled up don't matter anything to God as much as just getting to know you. See, prayer is the fancy Christian word that we use for having a real relationship with God. That's it. So knowing that, how many of you would say you actually pray? And since prayer is a relationship, we have to reframe the way that we think about prayer. See, Sometimes I think of prayer as just like me telling God all the bad things I've done. You know? Just like go through the list of all the things I feel bad about. You know? Or sometimes you go through the laundry list of things that you want, like God's Santa Claus or something. You know, like, Lord, it'd be really nice if we got an A on that test that I didn't study for. (laughs) But if prayer is a relationship, let's think of this in terms of relationship. Could you imagine... What my marriage would be like if that's how I treated my wife. Like, I would come home from work, and the only time I'd talk to her is if I told her about all the things I'd screwed up, you know? If you're like a St. Angelo driver, then you're like, hey, I inexplicably stopped at that yield sign on the feeder, even though that's not what that means at all. You know, or I ran three red lights today. Right? Could you imagine if that was my marriage? Nothing but telling my wife, oh, I was late for a meeting, and I feel bad about it. Will you say it's okay? Or if all I did was tell her about all the cool things I wish I had, but I don't have. Hey, Katie. You're great. I wanted an Xbox. Can you buy me an Xbox? I want one. If that's the only interaction I have with my wife, could you imagine? What would that marriage look like? It wouldn't exist. That's spoilers, okay? In actuality, the way that I think of prayer is I think of it like a dating relationship. Does that weird you out? I've actually gone on dates with Jesus. Times when I needed to make him feel real in my life. I would go to a restaurant by myself, ask for a table for two, and sit across from an empty chair. Knowing in my heart that that chair was filled with Jesus. Because what's more ridiculous? Sitting at a table by yourself or not having a relationship with Jesus. So my wife and I, we regularly communicate. I talk to her all day. You know, like we're always text messaging. It's usually me sending stupid memes. Or we'll call and we'll talk about like if I haven't seen her all day, I just can't wait to talk to her. Like, I'll, I'll call her in the middle of the day. Hey, how's your day going? How are the kids? What, what, what have you been up to today? And I can't wait to talk to her. Sometimes we talk about needs, but mostly I just want her to feel involved in my day, and I want to feel involved in hers. But what if I never talked to her, except on Sundays? <coughs> What if there was only one day a week when I would talk to her? And if 
Prayer is a relationship. If prayer is the expression of our relationship with Jesus, do you just talk to him one day a week? And then my wife and I, we go on dates. We go on dates. We, we set a specific time to get away, just the two of us, get away from everything around us, and just be together. Enjoy each other's presence. Sometimes we talk about work. Sometimes we talk about life. It doesn't matter because we're together. No kids. No grubby little five-year-old wiping his snotty nose on your sleeve. It's amazing. <coughs> not the snotty nose thing. But like ha not having that. <laughs> if prayer is relationship. If prayer is the outflowing of that relationship. If prayer is the foundation of knowing God and God knowing us. Then the way it is with my wife is how it should be with Jesus. We should be involving God in our daily lives. Constantly. There's no shame in a quick, short prayer. Just like, hey Lord, I love you and you're on my mind right now. Why is that bad? Right? There's nothing wrong with a simple reminder to your mind, body, and spirit that Jesus is with you. Smith Wigglesworth, one of my favorite evangelists in history, he says, I don't often spend more than half an hour of prayer in one time, but I never go more than half an hour without praying. Do you see this? There's no rules to this thing. We think that prayer has to be some kind of big ordeal that you Instagram or whatever, right? It doesn't count unless I have my cup of coffee and my journal out and I take a picture and I post hashtag Jesus time. I don't know. Is that a hashtag that people use? Sure. <coughs> yeah, sure. Whatever. <coughs> but the bottom line is you should want Jesus to be a part of your day. I want Jesus to be a part of my day because Jesus is a person and he wants to be invited along. But Jesus is also a gentleman. And he will not force his way into your life. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus stands at the door. It says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. How bananas is that? If anyone had the right to blow through somebody's door, it's the king of kings and the lord of lords, right? It's the, it's the creator of heaven and earth, Right? That verse should actually read, Behold, I make a Jesus-shaped hole in your door. Right? But it's not because he's kind. Because he's a gentleman. And what's worse still is what door is he knocking on? He's knocking on the door of his church. His church locked him out. Have you locked Jesus out of your life? Prayer is the means by which you invite Jesus in. He's constantly knocking at the door of your heart, knocking at the door of your lives. Will you let him in? Just like my wife and I set aside special dedicated time to go on dates, don't neglect setting aside special dedicated time to be with Jesus. Katie and I will meet for a lunch date sometimes, you know? And one of us will get there inevitably before the other. You know what I mean? Yeah. So the person that gets there first, what do you think they do? 
They wait. They wait. It's the reasonable thing to do. But I guarantee you the number one reason why people bail on Jesus when they're supposed to be having prayer time is because they don't wait. How insane would it be for me to like show up to a lunch date with my wife, right? We're going to Armentas because that's what God intended. That place is anointed. If you don't like it, you're in danger of hellfire. Right, Adam? You know what I'm saying? Anyway. How stupid would it be? I pull up there and don't see your car in the parking lot. I'm just like, all right, I'm out. She's not here. How dumb would that be, right? She'd pull up and she'd have like a plate of delicious enchiladas and then she would go home and she'd be annoyed. And what did I get? A hurt relationship with my wife and no enchiladas. It's stupid. But we do that to Jesus, right? We open up our Bible and we pray like, okay, God, bless us. Um, you know what? I don't feel his presence. I'm out. You know, like, how dumb. We sit down to have our devotional time with Jesus. And then if we don't feel his presence after five minutes, we just bail. Saying, I stopped praying because I didn't feel God's presence. Is like saying, I stopped going on a date with my significant other because they didn't get there before me. Pretty dumb. How long are you willing to wait at a coffee shop or a restaurant or at the UC for your dopey friend to show up? 20 minutes? 30 minutes before you start getting annoyed? You know, after 35 minutes, you just doom scroll for a while and then you don't know what's going on. And they show up and you're like, oh, all right, Chick-fil-A. And that's your stupid friend that can't even show up on time. How long are you willing to wait on the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, on the guy that died for you, the God of the universe? How long are you willing to wait on him to show up? One of my heroes in the faith, y'all are getting like a, a world tour right now, Andrew Murray, which it was really hard. Just to be honest here, not to make this whole sermon, nothing but Andrew Murray quotes, okay? Just grab a book by Andrew Murray and read it. He said this, If any are inclined to despond, which, to be sad, because they do not have such patience, let them be of good courage. It is in the course of our feeble and very imperfect waiting that God himself, by his hidden power, strengthens us and works out in us the patience of the great saints. The patience of Christ himself. Mm. It is in that waiting for God to show up. That not only the Lord teaches you something. But you show the Lord something. You show Jesus how much he's worth to you. Every few weeks I buy flowers for my wife. You know. I'm single-handedly keeping the H-E-B florist, like, employed. It's just something that's really important to me. I've done this since my wife and I started dating, which we're coming up on 20 years now. I have bought flowers for her at least once a month, every month, since we started dating 20 years ago. It's just something that I want to do, you know? I remember one day I came home and I had a bouquet of flowers and I gave it to my wife, you know. Uh, she likes the stargazer lilies because they open up and they smell really good and they're pretty, right? 
Um, so I remember giving a bouquet to my wife, and then my daughter walked up, Finny, she was like 11 or 12, she walked up and she was like, Dad, where are my flowers? It's like, dang it, this is gonna get expensive. <laughs> she gets the carnations, that's funny. They're cheap. But those flowers, uh, they don't last long. That's why I have to buy them so often. They don't last long because these flowers are cut from their roots. They're cut. I'm sure, you can put them in water and that sustains them for a bit. But ultimately, they're removed from their source of life. See, after the rebellion of humanity in the garden, we become like a cut flower. All humans are a cut flower. That's why you watch people get old and die and slowly waste away. Because we are separated from the ultimate source of life. Jesus says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. See, in the King James, they, they say the word abide, which is an old, old word, meaning to stay close to someone. To stay with someone. That's why Jesus says, remain in me. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about prayer. He's talking about relationship. Not only is prayer the will of God. Not only is prayer the avenue through which you know God and God knows you. But prayer is also the avenue through which God gives you life. It is that relationship. That makes you grafted onto the true vine, the true source of life. Prayer is vital. And notice the withered branch, it's not cast off and burnt as a punishment, it's cast off and burnt because of a result. You see, the, the withered branch is dead because it's not connected to the vine. See, when you pray, you will find yourself filled with the presence of Jesus and filled with life, capital L, and you will have little room for anything else. Everything that is in you that is dead and dying will be overwhelmed and overcome with life. How do I know? Because I've experienced it. You will not have the space in your mind and heart to be anxious or worried because your heart and soul will be filled with Jesus. You'll find that your desire for things that can harm or destroy you is replaced with the desire for Jesus and all the good that he brings. Because you're connected to the source of life. And you're not like a cut flower that's just jammed in some random jar of water, clinging to life as best you can. Do you see that? Yeah. Last thing about prayer. Have you ever noticed how people that hang out, like in groups, like when you hang out with a group of people, you tend to begin to act and look like one another? Have you noticed that? I want to tell you about one of my friends. I have a friend that was always looking to be a part of the Cool Kid Club. You know what I'm talking about? It's a club that I was never a part of, you can tell. But he always wanted to be in the Cool Kid Club. And so he go to whatever club of kids was cool, and he begin to adapt to them, right? He begin to like dress like them, and 
and talk like them. And then when that became not cool, he jumped to another group. And so what it turned into is my friend, like he'd go through fashion trends, right? Like first, it started as the frosted tips and puka shells, right? That was a cool look, guys. That like people did that on purpose. Can you believe that? That dude looks like he stuck a fork into a toaster. You know? And then, and then later on, it was like being a scene kid is what we called it. Like, you gotta be part of the music scene. And so it's like you're punk rock and, you know, stupid. <coughs> Thank God I've always been a nerd and I never went through anything. And then, and then, you know, like, and my buddy, like, after the scene kid stopped being cool, he switched over to the beards and the sweaters of the hipsters, right? <coughs> so cozy. He jumped from group to group to group. Because ultimately, the reality is, whomever you spend the most time with is who you eventually end up looking like. Whoever you spend the most time with is who you eventually end up looking like. When you spend time with Jesus, you'll end up looking like him. And that's the goal of what we do here in Chi Alpha. It's not for you to look like somebody in Chi Alpha, but to look like Jesus. Yeah. <clears throat> we don't want you to conform. We want you to be converted. So some of you may be apprehensive about prayer. You may be a little afraid of spending time with Jesus because of how you view yourself. Maybe you don't think of yourself as worthy, or maybe you don't see yourself as holy enough. But that's the beauty of prayer. So the people you spend time with are the people you end up looking like. So if you spend time with Jesus, he makes you worthy. And spending time with Jesus and waiting on his presence, he produces holiness in you. Because remember, he's the source of life. My man Leonard Ravenhill says, a sinning man stops praying and a praying man stops sinning. Let me say that again louder for the people in the back, right? Yeah, one more. A sinning man stops praying, and a praying man stops sinning. In John 15, Jesus goes on to say that if you abide in him and remain in him, if you stay connected to him through prayer, you will keep his commands. And for the longest time, I thought this was some kind of weird guilt trip. You know, he's like, well, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. Just like my mom used to do when she was leaving the house, you know, if you love me, you'll do the laundry. Sorry, mom, I guess I don't love you. I never said I was a good kid. But this isn't a guilt trip, right? This is a statement of fact. If you remain in him, you will show the fruit of it. If you abide with Jesus, if you have a prayer life, if you have a real, vital, connected relationship with him, you will keep his commands because you will look like him. Mm, yeah. And the power to overcome all of the horrible habits that you developed over your life that hurt you and hurt others around you will be overcome with life. Yeah. Mm. Overwhelming in a flood, rushing over the gates, knocking down the walls and barriers in your life. Yeah. Mm, yeah. As you spend time with Jesus, you will find yourself looking more and more like Him. 
See, prayer is the first thing that you should do. And prayer is the last thing. Prayer is the point where everything begins. And prayer is also the point where everything will end. Because ultimately, we'll all get to that place. Where he'll have to look at us. And say whether or not he knows us. And it's only accomplished through the discipline of prayer. And the worship team can come back up. See, prayer is what allows us to have a relationship with Jesus. It connects us to him as the source of life. It is the means by which our characters are redeemed into the likeness of Jesus. Prayer, if I can be really, really blunt and frank, is Christianity. It is walking with God. If you don't pray, you are not a Christian, and you are not walking with God. You are simply conforming to an external set of principles and moralistic philosophy that at the end of the day will have you cast out into darkness. You are a cut flower on your way to withering. The Bible has hundreds of commands, but all of them will find, find their foundation in the idea of prayer, the idea of knowing God through a living and active relationship. So Pam and Jonathan are going to play a bit, and I want to challenge you to pray tonight. Really pray. Not just like Not just giving God a list of the things you feel bad about. Not just giving God a list of the wrongs that you think have been done to you. Not just giving God a list of the things that you want. But actually asking Him how He is. Sharing your life with Him. Tell Him how your day has been. And then, wait. Wait for His presence. Wait for him to show up. Just like if you were on a date with that hot piece of bod. You wouldn't wait. Right? You wouldn't like bail because you had to wait five minutes. You'd be like, whoo, I'll wait here all day. You know it's true. Don't look embarrassed. We're all people around here. Just saying. And here we are, right? Or just just going to dismiss God because it didn't show up in the first couple minutes. I want to challenge you to actually treat God like He has some value. So I want to challenge you to pray. Maybe some of you are praying for the first time. Maybe some of you are praying for the thousandth time. But it doesn't matter. Just take this time to meet with Jesus. And maybe for some of you, this is going to sound really dumb, but maybe some of you, during this time, you get out your phone and you set a reminder to go off on your phone every 30 minutes so that you can remember to say hello to Jesus and invite him into your day. What would that look like as you go about your day and you remember, Jesus is with me. Man. Or maybe some of you need to be challenged to set aside an hour, just one hour, 
once this week and sit separate the special dedicated time just to sit and wait for Jesus and wait for his presence I promise you do it once you don't want to do it again Let's just meet with Jesus today. Let's either start a relationship with Him, wait for His presence, or let's go further and deeper in the relationship we already have. So the band will play, we will pray. Amen.